This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It's Thursday, February 17th, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, we'll have another bargaining session today at some point Thursday between the Players Association and the league, uh, probably in response to the latest proposal from the league. Uh, not expecting much movement, uh, but we're hope- hopefully getting, getting some sort of traction heading in towards this weekend. Yeah, I would, th- I would think this is a pretty good sign or Joe, or this is the, maybe the pressure of the calendar starting to move these, move these negotiations along, uh, you know, the, the, what are they've got about a, a week to go. What would they say? February 28th, maybe the end of February is, is a drop dead date for starting a regular season on time. So uh, I, I would think, uh, you know, meeting Thursday, maybe again, they'll meet again this weekend, hopefully. And uh, they'll get something done here, but uh, you know, this is what uh, always happens in negotiations. You know, the pressure of the deadline uh, kind of creates this—the need to uh, to get to the negotiating table. Right, and you know, we're already at the point where we're losing uh, practice uh, days. This is when uh, today was supposed to be the first full uh, first full workout uh, for pitchers and catchers. Uh, with with nobody in camp, we're definitely going to miss the beginning of exhibition games. But like you said, that that end of February date is sort of circled because uh, if you go much past that, then you're not going to be able to play uh, regular season games on time. And nobody wants to see that happen. I don't think either side wants to see that happen, but that's that's where we're heading right now. Uh, big news, I guess, and sort of like uh, under the radar headlines, uh, people have been following this. Uh, the, the trial of Eric Kay, the, the former Angels PR guy who's uh, out in California, was, he's uh, been implicated in uh, the death of Tyler Skaggs, uh, the, the pitcher who overdosed uh, a mixture of fentanyl and oxycodone and alcohol uh, a couple of years back. Uh, I believe it was the 2020 season. Uh, 2019. 2019 season, yes. Uh, the... Uh, you know, the, the revelations in this trial and the testimony uh, for the, the teammates at the time who were granted immunity, uh, Matt Harvey was one of them. Matt Harvey admitted to uh, using cocaine while he was, uh, you know, playing and it was provided by Kay, uh, as well as uh, a guy who pitched for Cleveland last year in, in Blake Parker. Yeah, Blake Parker, uh, you know, pitched for the 
Angels uh, for two years, I think 2017, 2018, and uh, he was a witness for the prosecution. Uh, Kay is facing like a, a possible 20 year uh, prison sentence if he's found guilty in this. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Parker admitted uh, using, uh, you know, pills supplied by, by Kay, but, uh, you know, but, and he, pro and he, you know, he testified yesterday. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a tragic case and right. it just goes to show you that, you know, it, it, as much as, uh, you know, drug testing goes on in major league baseball, you know, this, this, there's still stuff that gets under the radar. Right. And, you know, to be clear, this wasn't performance enhancing drugs that uh, Blake Parker was, was using at that time or admitted to using at that time. These were recreational drugs uh, like, like oxycodone uh, and, and fentanyl and uh, things like that. And this is, this is a, a bigger picture sort of, you know, tragedy sort of thing in, in the United States where uh, that anybody who's watched uh, the, the, the series on uh, Hulu uh, dope sick uh, knows just how, how tight of a hold these, these drugs have uh, all over the country and, and baseball players aren't immune. Yeah. And uh, you know, a guy like Harvey could face suspension, you know, if he, if he cooks on with another team, when the lockout ends, I think Parker and the other, the other angels, who admitted uh, the, the, using these kind of drugs, you know, would not face suspension per se. I don't think they would. It would fall under the uh, drug test, you know, the uh, the policy, the drug policy, where they would have to get counseling. Yeah, like some sort of diversion plan. And and Parker was had a had a real big impact on a, a young Cleveland bullpen last season. Uh, he was a, a a real calming presence for uh, you know Tyler Steffen, guys like that, and. And, you know, this does this sort of muddy the the chances that they might consider bringing Parker back next year? Yeah, I would think it would definitely put a question mark by him. He's a free agent, Joe. You know, he's out there. Uh, I thought he did a great job too. You know, I thought he really did help stabilize that bullpen, and he started pitching in more leverage situations. You know, the longer the season went, the later the season went. Um, so uh, you know, definitely a, a question mark where. Uh, if the if the if the Indians were considering bringing him back, what what you know has that changed now? Right. Yeah. That's uh, uh, they they can probably find another veteran guy to fill that role and, and provide that sort of you know stabilizing force if they if they don't want to have to deal with the whole question of uh, you know drugs or suspensions or anything like that. So uh, you know just something to keep an eye on as we as we go forward and, and continue here. Uh, all right. Uh, we yesterday in our 25 most memorable uh, Cleveland baseball players of the last 38 years, uh, we, we talked about Albert Bell. We had a great conversation about, uh, you know, his time and, and just, you know, the, the, basically the, the, the two sides of, of who he was as a, as a player and, a, you know, uh, just a, an all star, you know, all all world hitter and then just a you know, a menace uh, in, in other aspects of his game and his personality. Uh, we asked our subtext subscribers to uh, give their thoughts on Albert Bell and his time in Cleveland. And uh, we'll, we'll just uh, take a little sample and go through a few of them here, share them here on the, uh, the podcast uh, before we move on to today's top 25 uh, guy that we're going to talk about. Uh, 
if you want to get in on the subtext, uh, you know, you can log on uh, cleveland.com slash subtext to subscribe. It's $3.99 a month. Hoinsey, it's a, a great opportunity for, for these uh, Guardians fans, uh, Cleveland baseball fans to interact with us and, and talk with us and share their opinions and thoughts and ask questions and, and hopefully get questions answered as we get closer to the season. Uh, we, we, we really have a lot of fun with these subtext guys. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, we get, you know, we, I, they can send us Hey Hoinsey questions. You know, mm-hmm. they can send us any kind of questions and everything is appreciated. And the response to the Albert Bell podcast was, uh, you know, was great. That, that was the, the most uh, responses we've had since we started this series. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you want to subscribe again, three ninety nine a month, uh, it's 216-298-4346. If you want to uh, send a text message and automatically enroll, uh, we'd appreciate uh, hearing from you. All right. Here's a couple of uh, samples of, uh, you know, responses. This one from Debbie in Niles. She says, Albert was different. One of my favorite memories was when he went to Chicago and the first game the Sox played back at Jacobs Field, I was there. This guy in our section got everyone to yell casserole when Albert came to bat. So it sounded like a, a word that we won't uh, utter on the, on the podcast. Uh, I don't know if it did or didn't, but everybody was mad at Albert. He should have won MVP in 95. He was fun to watch. Uh, Steve, uh, this one from the 216 area code, in many ways, Albert is another example of the media bias in the Hall of Fame voting. Albert had several years where he was the best hitter in baseball. He just didn't like the media much like Steve Carlton. And uh, hey, I get drawing comparisons to Steve Carlton in your treatment of the media or your dealings with the media is probably not going to win you a lot of votes, huh, Lindsay? Probably not, but Carlton's in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, yeah. I covered Carlton when he was here in Cleveland. He just didn't talk. He didn't say a whole lot. So, but he wasn't nasty about it. <laughs> All right, uh, Bob in Lake F- Lake Worth, Florida, when Albert amazingly tomahawked a fastball from Armando Benitez for a grand salami in game four of the ALDS in 1996. I was standing in my finished basement where I had an office and forgot there was a low-hanging beam. I leapt up and knocked my skull possibly as hard as he knocked that ball. So this guy has uh, definite painful memories uh, tied to Albert Bell's success. Uh couple more here. Um, I remember him hitting grand, a game-winning grand slam homer off Lee Smith at Jacobs Field in the uh, bottom of the ninth or tenth. I was there for that one. Thought about leaving, but I stayed. It was incredible. Yeah, and, it into uh, the barbecue pit. That's, what, said, Lee Smith said. that's what Lee Smith said. Uh, Jim in Bay Village said, I happened to be at the White Sox Park uh, the night they confiscated Albert Bell's bat, I was sitting right down two rows from the field at home plate. Uh, his 44-year-old son, his 44-year-old son now, is was a huge Albert fan. Went to many games together to watch him. In fact, he has a 70-pound English bulldog that he named Albert Bell. So there you go. He's got a <laughs> got a, a a dog in Bay Village named after him, uh, Albert Bell leaving lasting memories in Cleveland among uh, our subtext subscribers. Uh, once again, you can get in on that if you uh, log on to cleveland.com slash subtext and subscribe. All right, Hoinsey, are you ready for today's uh, top 25 most memorable 
we'll do a, a blind reveal here to, to start. Uh, seven years with, uh, with Cleveland. He was a two-time All-Star and finished second in the Cy Young voting behind Randy Johnson uh, in 1995, the year he won the AL Fireman of the Year, was also the Cleveland chapter of the BBWAA uh, Man of the Year in 1995, holds franchise records for the most saves in a season with 46 and the most consecutive saves at 38, but what he's most remembered for was the blown save in the ninth inning of game seven of the 1997 World Series. Uh, it, could, it could only be one name, Heinze, uh, who is it? It could only be Jose Mesa. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize uh, in, in, in doing some, some digging and a little bit of research here that uh, Jose pitched for as long as he did. He had a long career. He was pitching until 2007. Yeah, he revived, you know, after having, you know, really being, uh, you know, kind of reaching the bottom, the, the, the low point of his career in, in, you know, not not recording that save in 1997 in game seven in 1997 against Florida. You know, uh, he really rebounded, Joe. I mean, this guy saved 321 games. I mean, he is he's 21st on the all time save list and. You know, you thought he did most of his uh, most of his you know successes with the Indians, but after he left, he still saved yeah, two hundred two hundred games. games. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I mean, you know, he pitched he pitched until he was forty. I think he made his big league debut at twenty one, and he pitched until he was forty one. And yeah. uh, you know, long career, but uh, unfortunate. And he had you know a great career with the Indians. Ninety five was. Uh, 46 out of 48 saves, uh, you know, when he made the conversion from uh, the, the rotation to the, uh, to the bullpen, uh, 1.13 ERA, uh, just, uh, you know, he was part of that. He was one of the big reasons they, they won hundred games out of 144 games. That year. Yeah. He's uh, among the franchise leaders all time. He's fifth in saves with 104 uh, for the, uh, for Cleveland. And uh, games finished, he's fifth with 195. So uh, he, those are pretty significant numbers there. Uh, what led to his, you talked about the move from the rotation and they were trying to make him a starter, uh, but you know, what led to him being inserted there as the, the, the closer and, and just sort of taking off from there? Uh, you know, Phil Reagan was the uh, bullpen coach. I mean, was the pitching coach then. And uh, he suggested uh, him and Grover got together. Mike Hargrove got together after uh, I think the uh, 1993 season when, you know, uh, Jose had, was starting for them, not having a lot of success. I mean, he's pitching a lot, uh, but they thought his stuff would really translate into a closer. So in 94, they moved him into the setup role and he had a great year, seven and five, 3.81 ERA, uh, in 51 games, all relief, all, re, you know, all out of the pen. And then the next year they moved him into the bullpen. I mean, into the closers role and, you know, the rest is history, but they thought, you know, his, he was, he threw hard, you know, he, you know, he, he had to, he could, you know, concentrate on just a couple pitches instead of, you know, the whole starters rep, repertoire. And uh, it really, and he just took to it. I mean, I just remember talking to him during that 95 season and he goes, you know, 
we would talk to him and he goes, you know, one, two, three, no doubt about it. You know, just like, <laughs> don't, he would talk about, you know, retiring to side in order in the night, like it was nothing. And it just, you know, it would, like this was, you know, it, it looked like it was easy for him compared to, you know, trying to, you know, manipulate through a, a lineup for five or six innings. I mean, he, he looked like he was a guy who just didn't have a pulse, who just didn't, you know, nothing really just bothered him. If, even if, it, it, even if things had gone off the rails, it, it, he was able to, I, I guess he's, he gives off the same sort of vibe that, uh, that the uh, Emmanuel Classe is giving off now for, for Cleveland. It, it's, you know, it, nothing really seems to affect him. He doesn't look rattled at all ever. Yeah. And uh, he, you know, he had, you know, in, in 95, he was like that a little later in his career, Joe, he, you know, he kind of got a little shaky and, you know, and he, he, when a closer stops talking to reporters after a game, after he blows saves or, you know, and he's kind of hiding, I'm not sure he was hiding, but, you know, he's not making himself available. Then, you know, something's wrong. And, uh, you know, that's what happened to Jose later in, in Cleveland, at least to me, that that's what happened, but he was a bad dude, man. You did not mess with him uh, in spring training, one spring training, they're playing the reds at, at winter Haven, Hal mm -hmm. Morris charged the mound. And, and Jose like tackled him, separated his shoulder and Hal Morris. I don't think he made it back until that, the all-star break that year. He, he was, you, you did not mess with him. Yeah. And I mean, he was not without his, you know, controversies as well. Uh, he, he did have a, a sort of a, a longstanding feud with Omar <laughs> Vizquel after the, the 1997 uh, world series, I guess, Omar, you know, he wrote in his uh, autobiography that, um, you know, they people they, they sort of knew his uh, his eyes were his eyes were vacant. Uh, everybody's eyes were focused on Cleveland, but his eyes were his eyes were vacant. And, you know, he, we knew that he would he would blow that game. Uh, what did you take away from the, the Jose Mesa, Omar Vizquel uh, feud? Oh, my God. I feel, <laughs> well, to me, it all started one spring, Joe. You know, they're, they were playing an inter-squad game. And uh, Vizquel hit a home run off Mesa. And mm -hmm. as he was going across the plate, he did a cartwheel across the plate. And, and Mesa and, and Vizquel were good friends. And, uh, but Mesa said, if he ever does that again, I'll punch him in, you know, I'll, I'll hit him in the head. And he was serious. And it kind of grew from there. And then, you know, of course, Vizquel kind of <laughs> opened, you know, <laughs> Created, yeah. you know, he found out what it, what it, what it feels like to be a an author, you know, while you're still uh, while you're still uh, playing baseball. <laughs> when you rip a guy, <laughs> I remember there was a quote that that uh, that that Jose had that that May said. He goes, "If I face him ten times, I'll hit him ten times. I want to kill him." And and he was that was serious. He was serious. And did they ever face each other after, after that? Yeah. In, in games? I mean, he, he hit him at least three times, you know, one, wow. uh, once in spring training and uh, another time uh, when he came to, when they were playing Philly uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in an inner squad, I mean, an interleague game. I mean, we asked, we asked uh, Vizquel why he didn't go, why he didn't charge the mound. He goes, I didn't want to get my butt kicked. So he <laughs> was smart, but it, it, they still don't talk. They still, they're still, I mean, uh, you know, Mesa is still upset about that. He's still, you know, right. he's, he's like yeah, the I, outlaw Josie Wales. He lives by the feud. Nothing, uh, nothing good ever comes of, uh, you know, players writing books while they're still playing 
playing yeah. the game. I, I think that's a, is the lesson to be learned here. The cautionary uh, tale, Joe. All right. Um, uh, it, it, we can't mention Jose Mesa without going back to that, uh, you know, 1997 season, which was sort of clouded in controversy as well. Uh, he was uh, charged with uh, sexual assault uh, in, in Lakewood uh, tied to an incident from uh, December of 1996. Uh, it was early in the season in, in April when he was acquitted of those charges, but, you know, something just doesn't, I, I think uh, if, if stuff like that would have happened nowadays, I think we would have had a, a completely different uh, take on Jose Mesa at, at, at this point. Yeah. I mean, he was exonerated, but he lost his closers job, you know, while Mike, uh, Mike Jackson took the closers job and he Finally got it back, I think, in the second half of the season. And then, of course, you know, he, he saves the game against, you know, game six against the, the, uh, the Orioles in, in the ALCS to get him to the World Series. And mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, he has the, uh, the 97, the uh, game seven, bottom of the ninth. The only team until that time that had the, the only team that was entering the seventh, the last inning of a World Series game with a lead for 92 straight years <laughs> to, to not come out and win it. And then, yeah. you know, they, they, the Marlins tied it and they lost it in 11. And I, you know, I remember talking to Jose, uh, you know, the next spring after that, and he said he couldn't, he stayed in bed for a week. He, he couldn't get out of bed. He was so, you know, distraught. He said he felt bad for Jarrett Wright. I was reading the story by sports illustrated. He said, in, in the story said he watched the the, uh, the replay of that the ninth inning 250 times during during the off season. I mean, it it, it really kind of it ruined. You know, that was pretty much the end of his career in in Cleveland. So for for you know Cleveland fans who who want to you know spit on his name or whatever after after losing that uh, after giving up that blowing that save. Uh, just know that he took it to heart as well. I mean, he was devastated by it as, as well. Uh, you know, this is the guy who you, you look at out there in 95 as the unflappable, you know, Mr. One, two, three, and that's what you were expecting. And when it doesn't work out that way, it affects not just the city, but it affects, you know, him personally, he was, he was devastated by it. Yeah. And you know, he did, he really didn't, like you said, he didn't give off that vibe of being affected by it. You know, he, he looked like, you know, kind of, strong stoic type but it you know it tore him up it, you know it, it definitely you know he he knew what was at stake obviously he let the the team down the city down and and you know he had a hard time uh, adjusting to that but give him credit he came back and you know he had a great career he just you know, right. he kept bouncing around but he had really really you know a strong he finished his career the right way what was he like uh, in the clubhouse and, uh, you know, to approach him or, or whatever? It, it got to be uh, at least a little bit different than uh, than talking about Albert from yesterday. But, uh, you know, we there are a lot of Dominican players in the clubhouse for Cleveland uh, even now. And uh, those are some of the more, you know, lively and personable guys on the roster. Uh, yeah. it's, it's actually a, a lot of fun to deal with them. Was, was Jose Mesa like that? Yeah, he was a fun guy. He was a good guy. You know, he, uh, he has 24 brothers and sisters, Joe. His, his, his dad, this is, 
dad was married to a couple times, but I, I once asked him if he could name all his brothers and sisters, and he named them all for me. Oh, <laughs> he came, you know, he came from a, a farm. You know, his dad was a farmer uh, in, in the Dominican and didn't want him to play baseball. He, you know, he wanted him, he thought it was a waste of time. And, uh, but he signed with Toronto when he was 15 and, uh, you know, as an outfielder and then, and then made the transition to the pitcher. Uh, yeah. so, um, but you know, it just, uh, you know, he, he was, he was always a good guy. I thought he, you know, you could talk to him and then, uh, you know, he, he was fine. He was, you know, I, it was a game when he was starting, there was a game he was starting against Toronto when Ricky Henderson was playing with, uh, with uh, the Blue Jays and Ricky was uh, leading off and Ricky was taking forever to get in the box to start the game. Like he was, you know, scratching, took, digging a toe hold, pulling out his uniform. First pitch of the game, <laughs> Jose throws right up and in and, and Henderson does like a cartwheel in, in the box and, uh, and he gets back in it, but he never, there was no, you know, he, he wasn't yelling or anything, but Jose had just got tired of waiting. You know, it just like, yeah. And, and, and back in 1990, you could, you could throw at a guy's uh, basically throw at a guy's head like that and send a message and nobody thought otherwise. Nowadays you do something like that and you know, benches are getting yeah, warned and, getting... and you might get kicked out of the game. Yeah. But... I mean, they could throw you out just for that, you know, with, with one pitch into a game. So uh, no, I, I get it. Yeah. He he's, you know, not without his controversies, not without his, you know, sort of, uh, a lot of people are going to see this podcast go up and, and think, oh, what are they going to say about Jose Mesa? But, you know, there was a time in 1995 when he was the most dominant pitcher who wasn't named Randy Johnson in baseball. Yeah, I mean, second in the, you know, the Cy Young voting, uh, the, you know, fireman of the year. Uh, you know, he didn't, he went to the All-Star game that year. He mm -hmm. didn't even have a, uh, a, a, you know, a bonus clause in his, in his, contract to go to the all-star game uh right. but uh dick jacobs the owner gave him you know gave him a bonus but you know that's you know the, i mean that's how kind of uh how dramatic a jump he made from just being kind of a also you know kind of a fourth or fifth starter kind of a right. struggling starter to all of a sudden he's a, he's the best closer in baseball yeah well you think about uh how good he was in 1995 those 38 consecutive saves uh, you know, 46 total. Uh, the uh, the stat, uh, the ERA plus stat is a league average stat where, you know, the league average is 100. I think Randy Johnson's that year, his Cy Young winning year uh, that year was 113. Uh, Jose Mesa's ERA plus in 1995 was 418. <laughs> so I'd say it was a pretty good year. Uh, yeah. and, you know, his one, uh, a 113 ERA. I mean, he only, he gave up what eight earned runs in, uh, how many innings pitched 72 innings, uh, eight, eight, eight earned runs in 64 innings pitched. Uh, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, I would say. And again, you got to remember that was a strike shortened season as well. So, uh, a lot of, a lot, lot to, lot to, it, if you take one thing away from today's podcast, it's, it's feel good about Jose Mesa and what he did, uh, you know, before that ninth inning in 1997, uh, because he was he was really good for Cleveland for uh, several years and, and had a long career. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, 
just, uh, you know, I think he should be in, in, in the Indians Hall of Fame. I don't know if he'll ever get there, but just for the impact he had on that team in the 95 team and, uh, you know, the uh, 41 years without a World Series appearance, 41 years without a, a, an appearance in the postseason, and they wouldn't have got there without him. Yeah, I think if they put him in the Indians Hall of Fame, his plaque should go on the same pillar as Omar's. I think the two of them could, <laughs> it, yeah. it would be appropriate. All right, Hoinsey, we'll be back again tomorrow with another edition of the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. And we'll, uh, we will talk about another uh, top 25 most memorable player in Cleveland over the last 38 years. <laughs>